How are you guys? It is such an honor uh, to be here. Uh, me and Eric go way back. Uh, I think it was like 25 years ago that I first met Eric. Uh, we were part of a church in southern Oregon. And then he got into pastoral ministry. I ended up going on the mission field for several years and then was a pastor in Hawaii, uh, suffering for Jesus there. And uh, then we were in Portland, Oregon for about a decade. Um, Portland, where the riots come from, uh, sure you've heard of it, and uh, was there pastoring a church. And now we get to consider Colorado Springs our home. We just moved here a couple of months ago, and we are loving it so far. Love this community. Um, Eric had a big part to play in getting us back out here. And uh, just really excited for what God is going to do in this new season. And as was mentioned, um, we have started this ministry called Pursuing Faith. And the reason we started this ministry is because we are witnessing in our nation, in our culture, a tidal wave, a tsunami of people who are leaving the faith, uh, doubting the faith, deconstructing the faith. Deconstruction is kind of the... The trending word right now, if you go on social media, uh, you'll see tens of thousands of people who over the last year or so have been posting videos, uh, TikTok or Instagram, saying, I don't believe, I've left the church, I no longer hold these theological positions, or coming out as an atheist. And we're seeing this happen all throughout the nation. And as this began to happen, um, the Lord just led my wife and I uh, to begin to step into this space and to start a ministry to help people find a roadmap back to faith. Uh, we get hundreds and hundreds of emails, messages from people all over who are saying, help, my son or daughter, they're deconstructing their faith. What do I do? Or we hear from college students who are like, I don't know if I believe this or I'm struggling with this aspect of theology or philosophy or science or my identity sexually or whatever. What can I do with that? And all of these questions, all of these concerns now are coming to the surface. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But our heart has been how can we help people have a roadmap back to faith? And how can we mentor people who are in that space of struggling or parents who are trying to figure out how do I help my kids through this? I just got a message this morning so you can kind of sense what we're dealing with now and the heartache behind these words. It said, hello, Dominic, can you please pray for me? I feel like I've lost my faith and lost him overnight. I am praying all the time that the Lord would take away these thoughts and strengthen my faith, but it's not getting better. It is so painful that I can hardly function. I really need your help. And then she said, I miss Jesus so much. And you can just hear in those words the, the, the cry for help. I miss Jesus. I miss my faith. And so anyway, we took a step of faith about six months ago. We started pursuingfaith.org. And uh, we're just seeing uh, the need is so immense right now. So anyway, if you're interested in all what we're doing, you can check on our website. I'd love to meet you afterwards. I'll be at the book table chatting and would love to hear your story. Um, I'm also excited to announce that um, Eric invited me to uh, teach a class here uh, starting in March. 
And the class is kind of on the flip side of doubt, and it's about faith. How do we grow in our faith? How do we flourish in our faith? So I believe in your bulletin there should be some more information about that. Oh, yeah, there's a slide. So Thursday, March 17th through Thursday, the April 21st from 7 to 8. So it's every single Thursday for about six weeks. We'd love for you to be a part of that free of charge. And we're going to be talking about how can our faith flourish in difficult times. Well, let's dive in. Let's get into scripture. If you have a Bible nearby, if you want to grab it and turn with me to the book of Jude. Now y'all just finished the book of Revelation. That was fantastic. But there's a little book right before Revelation that you know of. It only has one chapter in it. And it's Jude. And we're going to look at verse 22. Jude verse 22. And we'll throw it up on the screen as well. Jude verse 22. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. Now we did this last night. and Last night was pretty rowdy, a lot of fun. I think we can outdo it though. Can we read this verse together as a church? Let's just fill the sanctuary with the sound of scripture. So on the count of three. One, two, three. Be merciful to those who doubt. There are some people, when they read that verse about doubt, or when they hear people who are deconstructing their faith, have a really hard time understanding or relating to it. Perhaps you know someone like this. It's the people who, when you ask them, how long have you been a follower of Jesus, and they kind of give you a blank stare. It's like, well, I've always been a Christian. They were singing Hillsong in their mother's womb. And it's like they came into the world speaking in tongues and like they have this faith that's just rock solid. And they say, you know, I've never doubted. I've never really struggled. But the majority of us, in fact, according to a recent stat, two-thirds of American Christians say they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Two-thirds say, yeah, there are seasons in my life where I have questions. There are times when, in the word of David, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That there are times when it feels like my faith is being shaken. And doubt comes at us from a multitude of sources. Doubt is the moment when you're sitting in the hospital next to your loved one. And maybe they're, they're dying or struggling or, or suffering and You're calling out to God. You're praying for a miracle. Or a close friend of yours committed suicide. Or you go through a breakup or a divorce. Or maybe you're studying science. And at a surface level, there seems to be an incompatibility with the story that science is telling versus the story that scripture is telling. Or doubt can come at us as we look at churches. Now, you guys are an incredibly healthy, vibrant, beautiful church. You guys are an exception, Um, which, by the way, if I could just give a shout out to Eric, uh, he, it has been so awesome these last 25 years to see the Lord use him and work through him. And let me just tell you guys this, you have an amazing pastor who's not just a gifted teacher and communicator, but he has a heart of a pastor. He has a heart of a shepherd. And and that is just such a rare thing. So this is a healthy church, but there's a multitude of churches that aren't in that space, that that aren't healthy. And and for many people who are leaving the faith or leaving the church, 
It's because of what they see within dysfunctional churches that causes them to do so. You know, I was speaking in a city not too long ago, and a guy came up to me, and he's like, you know, I, I don't go to church very often. And I said, why not? And his answer, you, you've probably heard it a million times. He said, well, the church is full of hypocrites, right? To which I said, well, there's always room for one more. <laughs> I'm sure they'd love to have you be a part of it. But I get it. Like, the, the more you're in churches, the more you see churches, especially from the inside, you, you can see things that are difficult or politics or challenges. And, and so doubt can then arise. And people are like, I want nothing to do with this. This seems so broken. This seems so wrong. Doubt can be the moment even when you're reading Scripture. Have you ever read through the Bible and you find yourself wrestling with certain passages? Or you have questions about certain texts? You know, uh, many of us, we do these read through the Bible in a year programs, and they're great. You start in January, and you're in Genesis, and Genesis is mostly fast-moving. There's lots of stories, and then you get to Exodus, and that's really interesting, too. And if you miss a part, you can always watch the movie. But then you get to the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and how many read-through-the-Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus, right? Because you come across verses that, again, at a surface level can be really hard to understand or comprehend. Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. And you take the goat out of the pot and you put him outside, right? And there are times when we read the Bible it can be so hard to comprehend, to understand. And, and so there are many people that I hear from, people that you know, who are deconstructing, doubting, leaving their faith because of questions that arise through Scripture. You know, the philosopher Michael Novak, he said that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. We live in this cultural moment where we're breathing the secondhand smoke of doubt. And we as followers of Jesus, we need to know how to respond to those who are in that space of doubt. How do we love them through their doubt? And this is why... I had us turn to Jude, verse 22. Show mercy to those who doubt. Typically, when someone struggles with doubt, Christians will give them two options. And neither option is really good. Neither option is really healthy. I don't look at them real quick. And then I want to introduce a third option, which I believe is biblical, and God's heart for those who are doubting. But the first option that we give to people is, number one, if you're a note taker, we idolize the doubter. We idolize the doubter. Now, th this is not so much within church spaces, unless you're a, a part of a more liberal, progressive church, but culture at large certainly takes this posture. That when someone posts their video, I'm leaving the church, or I'm doubting the faith, or I used to believe, but I no longer believe, and I'm deconstructing, what culture is doing is applauding them for doing that. Good job. You're being authentic. Yes, leave Christianity. Yes, leave the faith. And there's a ton of affirmation that is coming at people right now if they're choosing to jump on this bandwagon and deconstruct like everyone else. But here's the problem with deconstruction. And, and, and it's the, the question, really, that I think culture is failing to ask. What lies on the other side of deconstruction? 
Any two-year-old can tear up a room, (laughs) but it takes wisdom to build a worldview. We could tear apart this building, rip apart the roof and the walls and get rid of the chairs and the heating, but I'm learning very quickly after being here a couple months in Colorado, A, I need to drink a ton of water, B, heat is really, really important. And with our worldview, you can deconstruct for a while, a year, two years, ten years, whatever, I'm done with this theology, I'm done with that church, I no longer believe this, I'm walking away from that, okay, you're you're ripping things apart, but then what? What will your worldview look like? Because everyone needs a house to live in. Everyone needs a worldview that like a compass is going to guide them and lead them. And so while culture idolizes the doubter and says, good job, you're being authentic. Yeah, good for you. You don't believe. But five years from now, you'll see lost, lonely, hurting people who don't know how to answer the larger questions of life because they've ripped apart the whole system. The second option that the doubter is handed, and this one is, I think, equally unhealthy, is not so much idolizing the doubter, but number two, it is demonizing the doubter. And I see this, again, not not in this church. You guys are incredibly healthy, grace-oriented, gospel-oriented, but there are a ton of churches and parts of our nation that their posture towards the doubter, the questioner, the skeptic, the cynic, whatever is rather than creating space for dialogue and discussion, it's to demonize and critique and judge and marginalize those who are struggling with their faith. Now, what happens in that kind of culture? What what happens in that context? Well, the person walks into the church. Let's see, they're Gen Z, and they're struggling with some issue of the Bible or church or whatever. And they they walk in, and they're like, man, I've got these questions, and I'm wrestling with with these things. But because the church context is you've got to put on the happy face and just smile and praise the Lord and don't dare ask any questions. So what happens to the doubter is they start to suppress their doubts. And the problem with that is doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. Now, that's where the enemy just loves to get in our headspace and mess with our thoughts and emotions and spiritual lives. Because when we're just suppressing it and we're not being honest before the Lord and before others, those doubts begin to grow. They become toxic. And as we'll see today, it's not until we drag it into the light that healing and redemption is found. So option one, culture idolizes the doubter. But the problem with that is that it leads to a vacuous worldview. Option two is to demonize the doubter. And another problem with demonizing the doubter is that there is this, I think it's a theological misunderstanding. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Now, for years, I used to think that was the case. Doubt and unbelief were kind of synonymous to me. But as I began to study scripture and realize God's heart towards the doubter and why verse like Jude 22 says, show mercy to those who doubt, I realize it's because, oh, doubt is kind of in a different space than unbelief. It's, well, think of a spectrum or think of a river. On one bank, you have belief, you have faith. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. On the other bank, you have, what's the opposite? Unbelief. What is doubt? Well, doubt is kind of this middle 
murky space, like a river that runs in between. And it all depends what you do. It all depends how you handle your doubt. It's why we started this ministry, because we believe there are healthy ways to deal with doubts and questions, and there are unhealthy ways to deal with doubts and questions. And how we respond can either lead us into deeper faith or it can lead us into a place of unbelief. Now let me just geek out with you guys for a couple minutes here. In the New Testament, you see this in the words that are used. For example, if you like to take notes or go deeper, the word doubt in the New Testament, in Greek, the most commonly used word is diakrino. Diakrino. And it means to separate or... To be torn. It's related to a Latin word, dubitare, which means two. So really, when you think of the word doubt, just think of someone who's being torn up inside. It's why the book of James says the person who doubts is like the man on the waves of the sea. He's tossed back and forth. There's this idea of two-ness, of separateness. It's like on one hand, I'm being drawn closer to you, Lord. But on the other hand, the world is pulling on me or these doubts are pulling on me or I'm struggling with this theological issue. So it's this idea of two-ness, dividedness. You're questioning, you're uncertain. The word unbelief, though, is a different word entirely. In in the Greek New Testament, it's the word apostia. And apostia can be translated as an unwillingness to believe. Doubt says, I don't know. (laughs) I'm struggling. Unbelief says, I've made up my mind. You know, for a number of years, I was actually born in England. You'd never guess it. Based on the accent, um, although I still do say tomato, that's like the one thing I, I hold on to religiously, but everything else has been Americanized tragically. Um, <laughs> but we went back to England, uh, to Oxford in 2010. And when I was there, it was fascinating because there, there was this dialogue that's happening between atheism and theism, between Christianity and those who don't believe. And at that time, um, one of the world's most leading physicists, Uh, Stephen Hawking was alive, and he was an ardent, passionate atheist. He died a few years ago, so I think his views on atheism have probably changed. Um, But at that time, he was very outspoken about his atheism, and he did an article with a British newspaper, and he was taking Christians to task in it and ripping apart faith. And at one point in this article, Stephen Hawking said, quote, Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. The person who was helping with this article, they then went to John Lennox, who, a brilliant mind apologist, by the way, if you want to look up his stuff on YouTube, just incredible thinker. John Lennox, he's a professor of mathematics at Oxford. And they went to John Lennox and said, your colleague Stephen Hawking just said that atheism or Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. What do you have to say about it? You're a Christian. And his response was, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. And in that answer, brilliant, he's putting his finger on something that there are some people who have chosen not to believe. There are some people who aren't just in a place of, I'm trying to figure it out. I've got doubts and questions and uncertainty. No, they have made up their mind. And what we see in the New Testament is a spectrum of belief. Faith on the one side, unbelief on the other side, and then doubt is this place that runs in between like a river. So as followers of Jesus, 
chances are, you know, I talked about the two-thirds of Americans who say they now struggle with doubt. But for you, it probably isn't a stat. Maybe there are some even in this room, there were last night, who are saying, yeah, I'm, I've got some questions right now. I'm struggling with my faith right now. I'm walking through the valley right now. Or there are people in your life, son, daughter, relative, co-worker, someone at school, a neighbor, and you know they should be here with you at church, but they're not. They used to follow Jesus, but they no longer are. They have said, we are deconstructing, or I have left the faith, or I don't know if I believe. And they have a myriad of reasons why. And again, the question is for us, okay, idolizing the doubter, that's not a good way to go. We don't applaud that. We don't say yay for you. Nor should we demonize the doubter and judge them and marginalize them and look down on them. So what does the Bible say? Well, it's that verse in Jude 22. Our posture, our response as followers of Jesus is to show mercy to the doubter. Now, what does that mean? Well, I found out a couple years ago that word mercy was used in the ancient world to describe someone who had broken a bone. Mercy means actually, literally, to repair a broken bone. Um, Here in Colorado Springs, you guys have those trampoline parks? Okay, you do. Uh, This might ruin it for you, so if you're about to go to one, you might want to plug your ears. (laughs) But a few years ago, I took my daughter, Amelia, to one. She was like seven at the time, and she landed... Uh, in the wrong way, and her leg, it was so horrific, uh, broke in a number of places at one point, just kind of sticking through the skin, and, and I'm just there. It's like the worst thing as a dad that, you know, you could ever see, and call for the ambulance. They show up. Turns out the paramedics, they were a part of our church in Portland, and just watching them care for her. She's in pain. She's in agony, the way that they comforted her, the way they gave her medicine, gently put her on the stretcher, put her in the ambulance. The whole process was care and compassion and concern. And this is the word that's used here in Jude 22. Why? Because when someone goes through a season when it feels like their faith is failing, when someone is doubting or deconstructing, it is one of the most painful things imaginable. It's spiritually disorienting. It it, it weighs on your heart. There's this tearing. That's why that Latin word dubitare is used. There's a tearing that happens at a soul level. And so the Lord tells us in his word, when someone's in that place, your son, your daughter, your brother, sister, parent, when they're in that place of like, I don't know if I believe, Our posture, like a paramedic who's helping to heal a broken bone, is we're to be faithful and present and loving and loyal and spirit-filled, not ignoring the break. No good doctor would do that. No, we acknowledge the brokenness. We acknowledge the hurt. And one of the most loving, redemptive things that you can say to someone who is doubting their faith is, I will love you through this. Show mercy to the doubter because doubt is painful. You know, one author, he put it this way. I love this quote. He said, doubts are ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. (laughs) And we see this all throughout the scripture. 
The, the Bible is full of people who went through seasons like this, whether Moses on the mountain or Sarah or Habakkuk. Did you know the word Habakkuk? His name literally means wrestler. He wrestled with all kinds of issues. Uh, if you're a fan of Nacho Libre, he was the world's first luchador. He wrestles with God, and God meets him through his doubts and struggles and heartache and pain. John the Baptist, he's like, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus didn't condemn John, but rather he said, man, that's the greatest prophet of all time. Or the disciples, the Great Commission, Jesus standing on the mountain, resurrected body. And Matthew 28 says, some worshiped and some doubted. And when I, when I first saw that, because I always focus on the worship part, of course they're going to worship Jesus. But when I realized, oh, some doubted, if it were me, if I were Jesus in that story, I would separate the worshipers from the doubters, right? Worshipers, you're on the team. Doubters, go home, get more education, whatever. Worshipers, you're going to be sent out to change the world. But Jesus, no one showed more mercy to the doubter than him. That's why I invited Thomas, touch my wounds. Jesus sent them out, and they turned the world upside down. Here's one to write down if you'd like to take notes. Psalm 73, verse 1. Here's a guy who struggled. Asaph wrote Psalm 73, and he starts by saying, Truly God is good. We love that verse as Christians. It's the foundation of theology. It fills virtually every song we sing. Yeah, God is good. But then in verse 2, Asaph says, But as for me, my feet almost slipped. Why? You keep reading the psalm, and he describes the struggle that he was in. It's like if you've ever gone rock climbing. I tried it once, and once was more than enough <laughs> for me. And I remember I was like up 100 feet or so, a place called Bend, Oregon. And my foot gave out. It, it slipped from the rock, and my whole body swung out. Now, fortunately, I was you know, connected and harnessed in. But that feeling of disorientation, when your stomach just lurches inside of you and your head starts to spin. Asaph says, that's what my season of doubt and struggle feels like. I believe that God is good, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. Doubt is the moment when, sure, you have this theology, this bedrock. You've gone through scripture. You believe it. You know it. You've heard it. And yet you're battling cancer or you're struggling with anxiety, or you're wrestling with depression, or you've got these unanswered questions, and there's a two-ness, there's a dividedness, there's a tearing that happens in your heart, and it's painful, it's tragic in many cases, and what a person needs when they're in that season of disorientation is mercy to repair a broken bone. I think of C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Grief Observed. Have any of you read A Grief Observed? Okay, a few hands. If I were to say like mere Christianity, probably 90% would be like, yeah, I've read that or Narnia. I've seen the movie. Um, but A Grief Observed is a little more, um, it's, it's a hard read to be honest. Those of you who read it, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's gritty, raw, uh, challenging, painful. Uh, he wrote it because his wife, Joy, died after a tragic battle with cancer. And he wrote it just coming out of a place of unfiltered honesty, of wrestling with God, doubts, questions, why 
Would you, God, allow this to happen? He said, I came to the door of prayer, and you slammed it in my face. God, my view of you is being disrupted. He called God the great iconoclast. He's like, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's the C.S. Lewis that many people don't acknowledge. They're like, oh yeah, mere Christianity, Narnia, rock solid faith. But he also went through a time where his faith was shaken. But what's fascinating about the book, because if you're going to pick it up and read it, you know, just so you know, the first half, it's like Eeyore vibes. It's really challenging. But then you get towards the end, you'll notice a shift where he moves from a less of an emphasis on trying to find the answer and more of an emphasis of intimate trust and relationship. It's like his, his faith was being reassembled, but in such a way where it wasn't like, I need bullet point cap poster answers and more, God, what my heart really longs for is you. He has another book called Till We Have Faces. And in that book, he said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. What other answer would suffice? In other words, Lord, I've come to a point in my life where what my heart wants more than anything isn't even resolution to the doubt. What my heart longs for is you. And see, this is where doubts can be redeemed. This is where the valley can lead to something more fruitful. This is where the heartache can actually produce something of substance. Because like a tree, the roots of our souls go deeper in seasons of thirst. And the questions, the heartache, the tension, the uncertainty, the pain, the deconstruction, the disorientation, the doubts even can be the very thing, if we allow the Spirit of God to meet us in that moment, can be the very thing that begins to push us into greater hunger and longing and thirst and desire for the presence of God. It's like any relationship, right? If a relationship's growing, chances are there's going to be questions. There may even be tension. There may even be conflict in that relationship. There was a guy at our church back in Oregon, and he was about 30 years old. Every single time I saw him, he was dating someone else. He was single, really wanted to mingle. And uh, it was like every time, he's like introducing me to a different person he was dating. And I remember one time he came up to me. He's like, hey, Tom, I've been dating this girl now for about six months. I'm like, cool, where is she? He's like, well, she doesn't go to church. I'm like, why? Well, she's not a Christian. Like, oh, okay, missionary dating. Let's talk about that. And I'm like, you know, why are you guys dating? And he said, well, to be honest, Dom, she's hot. That was his his answer. She's hot. I'm like, so is hell. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's talk about this. And so we we started to talk about this. And he began to share with me. He's like, well, one of the things that's interesting in our relationship is we don't really have any tension. We don't have any conflict. In fact, in six months, he said, we haven't had a single argument. Isn't that great? And I'm like, I don't, know. I don't know if that actually is great because if you're getting to know her and if she's getting to know you, for sure, there's going to be tension, right? There's going to be questions 
that arise. The question can actually be the thing that leads the relationship deeper. I think of my own wife, Elisa. We've been married almost for 22 years now. Amazing. The grace of God. But for 22 years, there is a lot I know about my wife. She's a morning person. Uh, She loves to cook. She used to be a cat person. And then she repented and we got a golden doodle. Um, (laughs) There's a lot I know about my wife, but there's still a lot that I'm learning about my wife. You know, a year ago, uh, she had a spontaneous lung collapse that landed her in the hospital for a few weeks. And it was really, really scary in the ER. And just seeing the way she responded to that and the courage that she had through that. And things I learned about her that after 20 plus years I had never seen in her. It was like the questions, the heartache, the pain, the difficulty. It brought things up that actually brought us closer together than ever before. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. It's the pursuit of love that leads to the discovery of love. And the same thing is true in your relationship with the Lord. The seasons of doubt, the struggle, the heartache, the God, why? Where are you? Why aren't you answering that prayer? Why is the world so broken? Why is the church so broken? Why is this theological issue bothering me? Why am I having to deal with this mental health thing? Why am I struggling because of this pain of my past? And those doubts and concerns and heartache and doubt can be the very thing as we bring it to the Lord. And what we find in the presence of the Lord is not condemnation, but rather mercy. Because no one showed more mercy to the doubter than Jesus. What you'll find if you're in that place, brothers and sisters, of hurting and heartache today, what you'll find is a physician who loves you, who cares for you, who will repair a broken bone. It's why Jesus said, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and you will find what? Rest for your soul. And that is our call. That is our commission. That is our mission to a world that is increasingly struggling with faith, to Christians who increasingly are leaving the faith, to Gen Z in particular that is deconstructing actively their faith. Our posture, our call is to be those who repair a broken bone and invite them on the journey of faith that's gritty and raw and unpredictable. But on the other side of that, like C.S. Lewis, what we find is you yourself, God, are the answer. You are the longing of my soul. So let me, let me leave you with this uh, story I mentioned earlier when I first got to know Eric, we were young, (laughs) 25 years ago, living in Southern Oregon. He goes on to pastor, and I moved to this little country uh, called Vanuatu. Have any of you heard of Vanuatu? Okay, a few of you have. If you've seen Survivor, I guess they did a series on that. Um, True. Uh, Vanuatu is one of the world's most primitive nations. So we lived in the jungle. 
no electricity, no running water. I was there for three years teaching the Bible to a group of about 30 students who came from different islands. And we met in this hut. And then after a year of going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, they went back to their villages to start churches and Bible schools. And when I first got there, 21 years old, I had so much to learn about their culture. It was an amazing culture. But the big learning curve for me was their language. They spoke a language called Bislama. And the best way, uh, how do I describe Bislama? It's like a really descriptive language. So they, they would take simple words and concepts and through kind of a pidgin slash French, a little bit of English, some of their local dialect, they'd begin to describe that thing. So for example, the word slingshot, uh, which we use to go get our food in the evening because there's no King Supers there. <laughs> if you want food, you got to go kill it yourself and cook it up. The word slingshot is elastic, blong, shootem pigeon. That's the, word, that's the word slingshot. My favorite word, though, by far, was the word piano. Um, you wouldn't say piano. You would say, in Bislama, him he won big fella box. Where he got white teeth blong him. Mo, he got black teeth blong him. Mo, suppose you kill him teeth blong him. Him he sing out long you. That's the word piano. <laughs> so... You can imagine we're teaching the Bible. We're in the book of Romans, which I'm so excited. But fasten your seatbelt for Romans. You come across this word propitiation. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to take months just for that word alone, right? But there was so much about their culture that was so beautiful. And one of the things I loved about it was the high value they placed on just being with people and generosity and hospitality. Every single night, they would sit around a fire, all of these students... And they called it Talk Story. Uh, nowadays, story is what we do on Instagram. There, they actually have a novel idea. It's with real people. Um, and you sit around a fire, and every night a different person would tell a story. I'd been there for about six months, and then they turned to me. They're like, hey, Dom, tell us a story. What is your favorite place in America? And without even thinking about it, I probably should have, I blurted out, Disneyland. And they're like... What's Disneyland? I'm like, what, how, do I, how do I even begin to describe this place? To those who are in the jungle and such a different context and environment. And I said, well, um, there's this place in California. And the first thing you see there is a castle. But the problem is in their language, there is no word for castle. The closest word they have is big fella hut. So I said, there's a big hut in California. They're like, how big is this hut? I'm like, it's 100 feet tall. They're like, whoa, that's a huge hut. Who lives inside the hut? I'm like, um, there's a mouse. Um, <laughs> and they're like, what? Because there's no word for mouse in Bislama. The closest they have is <laughs> big fella rat which was their worst nightmare because rats were a huge problem in Vanuatu. So they're like, okay, there's a 100-foot-tall hut in California. And inside, I said, there's a big fellow rat whose name is Mickey. And they're like, how big is the rat? They're getting concerned at this point. I'm like, he's like eight feet tall. And they're like, what? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's not a real rat. There's someone inside the rat. He... He eats people? 
No, 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 no. No, he's like inside the, the fur of the rat. Demon possession? I'm like, no. And like for half an hour, I'm trying my best to describe this to them. And finally, it got, it got real quiet for a few moments. And one of the guys, true story, looked at me and he's like, Dominic, dead serious. Dominic, you must never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. <laughs> and Mickey the rat, he said, is a witch doctor. <laughs> and he's serious. So what I thought was the happiest place on earth, in his mind, it was a version of hell led by a mastermind slash witch doctor named Mickey. And so we continued on the conversation. I'm like, no, it's really not that bad. And it came to a point in the conversation where I said, what is the only way their doubts and questions could be resolved? What's the only way? If they went, right? I made a hundred bucks as a teacher in Vanuatu. I didn't have the money, but I said, if I had money, I'd buy y'all tickets, we'd get on a plane, we could fly to Anaheim, we'd get on a taxi, you could see the castle for yourself, you could take a selfie with Mickey, hashtag witch doctor vibes. Like, <laughs> if you saw it, if you experienced it, if you went, the doubts and questions and uncertainty that you have could be resolved. And I think, brothers and sisters, we live in this moment where it's kind of our version, 2022, of culturally, we're sitting around the dump fire, dumpster fire of everything that's happening in the world and all the heartache and all the pain and all the politics and all the uncertainty and potential conflict and all of these things. And we're living in this moment where many, many people are struggling with their faith. Many, many people, it's their version of big fella hut, big fella rat. What do I do? How do I respond? And the word of God gives us the invitation that in those seasons where we're hurting and struggling and wrestling and uncertain, God says, I'm calling you on a journey. Pack your bags, let's go. Because I want to take you further and deeper than you've ever gone before. Our questions and doubts, if we let it, can be the very thing that leads to healing. And that is why the word of God says, show mercy. Show mercy to those who doubt. Not idolizing the doubter, not demonizing the doubter, but like the physician mending a broken bone, like Jesus has done with us in loving us, in rescuing us, and leading us back home. He invites us as followers of Jesus to do the same with those who are hurting in our life. Show mercy to those who doubt. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray your blessing on this amazing church Lord, I thank you for it. I thank you for the faithfulness of this community, the impact of this community. Thank you, Lord, for the leadership of this community. And Lord, I, I pray specifically today, first of all, for any who are in this place who are wrestling with their own doubts and questions, and they don't even know why they ended up here at church today, but you brought them. Lord, I pray even in this moment that your spirit would speak to them, that you would bring healing to them, that you would restore the joy of their salvation, that you would walk with them through the valley, that you would deepen their faith, 
that you would renew their hope. God, ignite their joy. And Lord, for those of us, I think the majority of us who have people in our life that we know who are struggling and doubting that should be here right now, that should be worshiping, that used to be following you, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond. Sons, daughters, parents, friends, roommates, God, we pray that this would be a week of breakthrough. We pray that you would give us wisdom to show us how we can show mercy and love them as you love them. So fill us, Lord, with the power of your spirit. Give us strength like only you can. And God, may we see you work. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And everyone said, amen. Amen.